Welcome to the IP Obsessed podcast with the IP Duo, where we discuss the intersection of intellectual property and our lives. We will share real life stories, common mistakes and misconceptions, as well as successes. Whether you're a founder, an investor, an inventor, or an executive of a Fortune 100 company, intellectual property is everywhere, and it's vital for success of any business. I'm Michelle Ciotola. I'm a trademark and copyright attorney. I help companies build and protect their brands and creative content. And I'm Tina Dore, and I'm a patent attorney and a PhD chemist, and I help companies protect their inventions. Together, we're the IP duo. Hi, welcome to the next episode of our podcast, IP Obsessed with the IP Duo. I'm Michelle Ciotola. I'm the trademark and copyright attorney. And I'm Tina Dore, and I'm a PhD chemist and a patent attorney. So today we have a really interesting topic, um, and it's one that we talked about, I think, in our first episode when we were kind of going over all the basics of intellectual property. We're going to talk about trade secrets um, and we have a special guest, our, our partner, Dave Christensen, um, who's uh, certainly a trade secret expert. Um, and so what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of go over the basics of trade secrets um, that, you know, I, certainly I'm excited to learn a, a lot more about. Um, and then we're going to get into some kind of fun topics. Um, I, you, I think, I don't know, Tina, you can you can agree or disagree, but I think one of the most uh well-known trade secrets is probably that that super secret recipe for coca-cola oh yes um, and i'm holding up our <laughs> that we hold up every time yep um, we can always go back to good old coca-cola for examples yeah, exactly. uh, and so we're, we're going to do a little bit of the details and you know and i don't know i was in preparing for this i was kind of thinking about what are some really well-known trade secrets um you know in addition to coca-cola i mean i, I know that um you know the the colonel Sanders Kentucky Fried Chicken recipe is another one that that comes to mind, and um, I was also surprised in you know in thinking about about this you know the Google algorithm for searches, like how how do they how do they do the searches, and that's that's a trade secret too, um, which I thought was it was interesting. Um, but but without further ado, um, I'm so excited to have have you here with us, Dave. Um, would you mind introducing yourself a little to our listeners? Um, thanks, Michelle. I'm Tina. I'm happy to do so. Um, Dave Christensen. I'm a, a partner at Cantor Colburn uh, in Hartford, Connecticut. I chair our additive manufacturing and our mechanical engineering practice groups, and I've been here for about 15 years. Uh, before that, I was at a, a variety of in-house positions, um, in, in obviously in-house at corporations. And, and Dave, I know you know. I always follow your LinkedIn. Um, and I, I can't help but be a little envious of uh, one of your one of your hobbies when you do find time outside the office. Sure. So I am in, in addition when I'm not here in this lovely office. Uh, one of the things I do enjoy doing is scuba diving. Uh, it's something I I learned to do with my daughters um, probably about twelve years ago now. Um, and I've got the first level of professional degree, so I actually help teach new divers how to how to dive and how to stay safe underwater. That might be dangerous information because that's on my my list of things to, to do. And I so know the the one nice thing about scuba diving is that your cell phone cannot go with you. No one can yeah. reach you. So Tina, I'm gonna pass it to you to start talking a little bit um trade secrets with Dave. Thanks, Michelle, for that intro. Uh Dave, thanks again, as Michelle said, for for talking with us about this. We 
Um, I think it's this is a really important topic to really dive into and understand because trade secrets are something that every company has, um, and anything and everything can you know be a trade secret. So then it's really important to understand you know how to protect them and and what they are. Uh, so let's start with the basics. So Dave, what exactly is a trade secret? Sure. So um, interestingly, historically, there was not a, a very good definition for trade secrets. Um, unlike patents and copyrights and trademarks, which are in the Constitution, which kind of defines what they are, trade secrets were developed by each of the states individually. So over the course of history, they developed each, each state developed their own their own law in that area. Um, fortunately, however, for us in our generation, uh, there was something called the Uniform uh, Trade Secret Act, which was uh, created originally in the 70s and, and amended and, and has now been adopted by, I think it's 48 of the 50 states. And that's created a little bit of uh, a little bit of uh, commonality between the states, so we can we can kind of talk about this a little more in general. Um, change trade secrets. You know, the the most general um, definition is it's information, and it's information that you receive commercial benefit from by keeping it a secret. So you know, we mentioned before the Coca Cola formula. Coca Cola formula was was originally developed, I believe, in the twenties. And if they had patented it, which they could, it's a, it's a material that they could have patented, they would have only had a 20-year life on their patent. However, trade secrets don't have an expiration date as long as they remain secret. Uh, what, you know, what, what are the types of things that, uh, that you, know, you, can, you can trade secret is, anything, like, like I said, anything that develops um, commercial value. So it could be a formula, it could be a manufacturing process, it could be a, a set of marketing data or customer data that, again, that gives you a, a competitive advantage um, over you know, other people in the marketplace. Great. Um, so you sort of touched on, my next question was going to be, you know, what types of things sure. can be trade secret? And those are great examples. So a, a wide array of uh, information, as you said, I love that expression of what a trade secret is. Uh, so my understanding is it's not only enough to have this, you know, information provide a competitive advantage to call it a trade secret and to garner protection under the law, you have to do certain things to protect that information. So in your opinion, I know that, you know, my understanding is that there are many, many different types of, you know, physical and uh, electronic security measures that you can take, but what do you think are the top three? Sure. So, um, you know, one of the one of the the requirements, and and this is the this is one of the reasons why the uh, Uniform Trade Secret Act is kind of nice. If it, it to the extent that the states adopted it and, and use this definition, is you just have to use reasonable means or reasonable steps to keep the information confidential. So, you know, what is reasonable could change depending on the type of of information that we're talking about. Um, the, the, the three, you know, if I had to pick three, you know, the, the, the two that I would certainly pick is make sure you have a confidentiality agreement with your employees. And second, um, is make sure that you have a non-disclosure agreement in place with your suppliers, a properly written non-disclosure agreement. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about a certain recent case where it was non-disclosure agreements are probably the most common agreement amongst companies, at least in the U.S., and many people don't think twice about them. And, and as you, you will talk about, 
that result that could result in it's a major loss of, of information for you if it's not done correctly. Uh, the, you know, the third thing that I would suggest from a from a trade secret information or trade secret process is segregate your information. Uh, I used to be in house at, at a company that had a proprietary process for developing uh, fuel cell membrane, not fuel cell electrolyzer membranes or fuel cell membranes. It involved the catalyst, it involved processing a catalyst and, and, and then the, the applying of it to a membrane. And what we did is we actually broke that process up into multiple steps. We only trained some employees on one, trained another separate group on the other half. They were not allowed to tell each other what, what, the, um, what the steps were in their respective processes. They occurred in different rooms. The rooms were key carded so that only those employees could do it. And it would be extremely hard for somebody to replicate the process because no, there were, there were only about three people in the entire company that knew the entire process. Everybody else only knew a small portion of it. Wow, interesting. Really? Yeah, that's a great strategy. And I'm curious because you were in house and you mentioned this great example. Uh, did you have routine training on trade secrets for employees? And did you have you know, certain language during your exit interview that where you reminded them of the trade secrets? Correct. Yeah. So we had annual training on, on IP in general and trade secret was certainly part of that um, because the trade secrets were such a, a an integral part of the business and, and what made their products work. It was it was really on the top of minds of people um, most of the time. Um, because everyone always wanted to bring their visitors in to show us this great manufacturing room. And I'm like, stop, you're killing me. Right. Um, yeah, we can't do that. So trade secrets in that particular company were more on top of mind. Other other businesses that I was involved with, you know, it was covered during, it was covered, certainly covered during trainings. Uh, but you did mention a, a really important, a really important thing to do. And that is, um, is that is exit interviews with employees who were leaving companies. If you, if you follow the news, most trade secret lawsuits involve former employees going to work for competitors. That's the only way you can stop them from using the information they gained while you're, while they were working with you. So reminding people at an exit interview kind of takes away that argument. Oh, I didn't know. Um, you know what, again, the, the company that, that I worked for that was trade secret based at our exit interview, we gave them a copy of their, of the agreement they signed the first day they were on the job and said, by the way, here's a copy of the agreement you signed that said you will keep maintain all this information secret. So that's great. Uh, so reminding, reminding people, uh, providing regular training, those are all great things to do. Uh, now, speaking of you know confidentiality and that NDA agreement, you've mentioned that a few times. Uh, you know, I saw this Blade Room case, and this is why we wanted to invite you uh, to speak about this topic. You wrote this great article that we'll, we'll share in. Uh, the notes. Uh, it was Blade Room versus Emerson, and there was an issue about uh, specific language in an NDA. And as lawyers, of course, we know inference patent lawyers too. Every single word has a meaning. Now, what was the issue in that case, and what, what's the takeaway from that? Sure. So, um, Blade Room. It was Blade, Blade Room sued Emerson uh, Electric for trade secret misappropriation, and, and the situation, kind of the background of it, was uh, both Blade Room and Emerson were uh, are in the business of building data centers for for computer companies such as Facebook, Google, you name it. Um, Emerson was looking to acquire Blade Room. 
They executed a non-disclosure agreement, uh, obviously in, the in doing due diligence for a merger or acquisition, you're gonna disclose a lot of information. So uh, the thing that was, was supposed to protect Blade Room was this NDA. Um, the, the, the discussions broke off and then uh, a couple months later, uh, Facebook actually submitted a request for a proposal that both companies uh, responded to. Uh, the following year, it was granted to Emerson and Blade Room um, at least claimed that Emerson had used their information as part of their design. Now, the whole, the whole crux of the case came down to the non-disclosure agreement, and it came down to one paragraph. And, and I'm just going to read it to you because it's um, just to make sure that the language is, is not paraphrased, uh, because like we talked about, every word matters. Uh, the parties acknowledge and agree that the respective obligations under this agreement shall be continuing and, in particular, they shall survive termination of any discussion or negotiations between you and Blade Room regarding the transaction, provided that this agreement shall terminate two years from the date thereof. So the court focused on a couple things particularly the last phrase, provided the agreement shall terminate two years from the date thereof, and the placement of the word and. Um, you know, we've all heard cases where placement of a comma, or in this case, the word and, can change how a sentence is read. And what the, what the court found, um, you know, if you were to read this, this paragraph very quickly, you'd say, oh, this... Your, your obligations of confidentiality survive termination of the agreement. Well, when you actually parse the sentence, which is what's going to happen in litigation when somebody else is trying to convince the judge of a different interpretation, when you parse it down and you look at it grammatically, it's actually two separate phrases. There's the survive obligation of the discussions and the agreement terminates in two years. And what the court said was, yeah, so you're you're you know if if you if you sign this agreement on January first, you terminate your discussions on of say twenty twenty two, and you you terminate those on February first. You have an obligation to keep things secret for the two years that the agreement is in place. So effectively, though it wasn't necessarily what happened, it, they didn't necessarily talk about this. Effectively, all of Blade Room's trade secrets that they disclosed as part of this merger and acquisition negotiations are no longer confidential after the two years of the of the, of the agreement. Um, so, as a result of this, um, the yeah Blade Room Blade Room won it at trial and then they lost on appeal, and the appeals court did a very nice job of, of walking through the entire sentence. Um, so, effectively, Blade Room lost. Um, they, and, and again, they didn't really talk about this in the agreement, in the, in the opinion, but any of the information, not just this small set that they talked about with respect to Facebook's, um, design, um, becomes, is not trade secret anymore. So that, I, if, if they're going to be acquired by anybody else in the future, that would be the first question I'd ask is, well, what did you lose? Uh, what else did you lose? Customers, customer information, pricing information, supplier information, all of that. Now, Dave, what's what's common practice? This type of clause is, you know, present in these types mm -hmm. 
benefits. Now, what's common practice for termination of, you know, how long should that duty extend typically? Sure. So, you know, the typically, there's no typicals, but typically there is, you know, typically things needs to be, are, are kept confidential for a period of time. Provided that you're not showing somebody trade secrets. Right. Anytime you're showing someone trade secrets, that obligation should last forever or until it's no longer a trade secret. What happened in the case of, of Blade Room was you had a compound sentence here. Instead of saying your obligations survive termination, they, they, they tried to group together a couple things. And, you know, part of the issue, and we didn't really talk about this, is that, you know, Blade Room, I think maybe I'm not sure if they're an English company, but there was there was there was a lot of discussion about how England interprets. Uh, so the, this was under the laws of England and Wales, um, and uh, but at the end of the day, they they compounded two obligations together in a single sentence, and by not carefully drafting it in a way, at least an American judge would read it, uh, or panel of judges would read it, they they created this this issue. You know, I think it was a mistake, a drafting mistake. So this this agreement originated from Blade Room, which is another which is another factor. So they're the ones who proposed the language, and, and it, it was oh. interpreted against them. I suspect this is in their standard agreement, and I suspect possibly in based on my experience with European uh, European attorneys, who they tend to be a little bit looser in their language. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect this is in all their non-disclosure agreements. And this is probably their standard non-disclosure agreement. And anytime, particularly with the mergers and acquisitions agreement, you should be really careful with that document. Because when, you, when you're doing an M&A, you are showing them everything you need to in order for, to get them to know whether or not they want to purchase. Mm-hmm. So what's your takeaway from this, Dave? Uh, use short, concise state, uh, statements. In uh, all seriousness, um, the the you know it, it sounds simple, but you, you need to be you need to be. You, there's two takeaways. One, um, non-disclosure agreements in most companies, if not all companies, are treated like a commodity, mm-hmm. and they have a template, and that template is freely used by anyone. Um, so you need to be. That's that's something that we're. That's never going to change because you're never going to get an attorney. To, you're never going to be able to afford to have an attorney sign every NDA agreement. But you need to make sure that NDA agreement that you are using is is carefully prepared, and also that it's appropriate for the jurisdiction you're doing the actual transaction in, and that you are um, if you're dealing with a bet the company type of situation, that you have an attorney look at it. You know, if it's an agreement with your supplier, that's one thing. If it's an agreement for the sale of your company, completely different. <laughs> Maybe spend the money, have a lawyer look at it. Right, right. 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 That's, a, that's a situation where you probably want to do that. Yeah, yeah. Templates are great, but only only so so far as you're actually reviewing everything and using them appropriately. And I love that. I love that suggestion too about short, concise, because uh, you know, I think us us lawyers have reputations of being uh, a little overly verbose sometimes. I think the words prolix is the fancy word for yes. (laughs) There we go. So 
that, that's a great, uh, that's a great, great case and a great example of how important languages and like you said, I, I think and Michelle emphasized, yes, use a short, concise language is typically best. Yeah, absolutely. So um, moving from the agreement realm of trade secrets, let's talk about one of our um, favorite topics, Coca-Cola. So now, Dave, I think you had said that that the formula has been around since the 1800s, right? And obviously, you know, the trade secret is far more valuable than than the, the patent in that case. Um, you know, and it strikes me too, like, you know, when we're talking about trade secrets, they can go on forever as long as you're keeping them secret. Um, so what, what kinds of things are you aware of that Coca-Cola or other companies, I guess Coca-Cola specifically have, has done to keep that formula? So Coca-Cola has had some interesting history. Like, like we said, 80 years that, you know, no one's, people have tried, you know, from a, from a, from a technical standpoint, people have tried to reverse engineer Coca-Cola's formula. Uh, one of the things we didn't talk about earlier with regards to trade secrets is yes, it has to be, you have to gain value from it by keeping it a secret and it really can't be reversed. It can't be reverse engineerable. Somebody can't take whatever it is you're selling and replicate what you're doing. And people have tried, it's my understanding, people have tried to replicate the Coca-Cola formula. They've done, you know, they've done, they've done chemical analyses and they've, they've tried to replicate as best they can. They, they weren't able to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, roughly we're now getting a little bit dated, but back in 2006, um, one of their secretaries uh, in their executive offices actually stole the formula and offered to sell it to Pepsi. Yeah. Wow. There's, there, there's company loyalty for you for $1.5 million. Not only did she steal it, but then she really undervalued. The, I was just going to say $1.5 million. I mean, the, you know, that's... Yeah. Wow. Fortunately, Pepsi's Pepsi, obviously very sophisticated mm-hmm. um, entity knew that if they received this, they'd be receiving stolen, basically stolen property, right? So they would be liable for trade secret misappropriation potentially if they if they accepted these goods. Pepsi contacted Coke. Now, these are two companies that are fierce competitors, and they, mm-hmm. they contacted Coke. Coke contacted the FBI, and the FBI set up a thing. They, they, the FBI took over negotiations with the, with the secretary and she had some uh, people who were collaborating with her and um, offered to, you know, actually gave them, had a meetup, received some information from her, gave her a briefcase with $30,000 in it. What? Um, and yeah, they, they went the whole, they went the whole way. Uh, and then, and then, you know, this, this, this group of three people opened up a bank account. They used one of their addresses as the home address for it, um, and and but subsequent before they they went to the next stage, they arrested them. Now that's the one interesting thing part about trade also about trade secrets that does not apply to patents, copyrights. Well, maybe not, maybe copyrights in some circumstances, yeah. but certainly not patents and trademarks. Is you can go to jail. Um, you know, uh, trade secret misappropriation is also a is also a crime, um, and. Uh, last year, I want to say it is, you know, Coca-Cola found themselves in the situation again, not, not quite the same, but similar situation again, um, as, as you guys probably know, the inside of, of soda cans are lined with a, a material that is BHP free BHP, uh, which Tina, you're the chemist. You probably know what that means. I'm a mechanical engineer. 
Um, all I know is there's a coating on the inside keeps it that doesn't have certain chemicals and allows you to maintain the, the product. Well, one of their one of their engineers um, stole the process for the coating of the inside of their cans and sold it to an entity in China. Uh, don't know the full details on it. All I know is that they're that the the individual was was arrested and tried and is now in jail. In the United States. In the United States. Yeah. That's that's interesting because if you think about it, once that trade secret is out, like unlike a patent where you can there's some kind of penalty, it's out. Correct. And that and that's actually another good point about trade secrets is there's a couple ways you can lose your trade secrets. You could be like Blade Room and not protect them mm-hmm. adequately. Um, and once, but once they're public, the trade secret protection, even if it's not your fault, once they're public, once it's public, it's nothing you can do to, to recapture that. So if, if this secretary had taken the formula and put it on the internet instead of trying to sell it, um, it would be gone. It would be gone forever. So, um, you know, that, that's one of the downsides of trade secrets is that if somebody can reverse engineer it or if somebody independently develops the same exact information, there's nothing you can do about that. So I guess in deciding whether to pursue the patent route or the trade secret, um, that's certainly one of the, one of the considerations. That's one of the key considerations is, is reverse engineering ability of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Well, thank you so much, Dave. Uh, I don't know if you have any other any other questions because I really could talk about this forever. I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by the stories that you're you're sharing and the cases that you're talking to us about. Oh, I agree. No more questions for me. Um, and yes, I agree, Michelle. Maybe we'll have a part two. It's fascinating mm-hmm. that you can actually go to jail. One interesting piece of information about jail time is in China, uh, patent infringement can be a crime, and you can go to jail in China. So that's interesting to know because a lot of companies are, you know, iffy about filing patents in China, but a lot of U.S. companies, you know, do have patents over there as well. Well, thank you so much, Dave. Uh, nice to chat with you. Thank you for being our first, well, our second official guest on the podcast. Uh, so thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm Tina Dore. I'm a PhD chemist and a patent attorney. Um, that part of the IP duo. And I'm Michelle Ciotola, the trademark and copyright attorney of the IP duo. And as a reminder, this, uh, you know, we're just providing information for informational purposes and and this isn't uh, legal advice. Uh, We're not uh, creating an attorney client privilege with this information. Uh, Please listen to our podcast. You can find us IP obsessed on Apple podcasts and Spotify. And if you would be so kind to rate us with five stars at as uh, to be found on the internet. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Dave, again. Yes, thank you, Dave. In addition, as always, thanks to our amazing team that helps us get this podcast up and running. Um, Jess Lister, Dan Cody, and George Pelletier. Thank you. And Dave, thank you.